I think you used to own angels at home and your dad fought with you. Oh my God, yes. How did you know? I told you that I have this father-son syndrome, right? Cat on hot tin roof. So I love my father dearly. And one day, my father came to my house, my apartment, and there were a lot of angels. I collected angels. So he asked me to get rid of it. He's a good Muslim. And I said, no, they're just like lampshades. I don't pray to these things. And that was the only time in my life that I went against my late father. And he shouted at me. He says, oh, go be a Christian then, all that. And I knew I heard him. Because as a father, as a Muslim father, he wanted the best for me. And his fear was I wouldn't go to heaven because I collected angels. And that's why he was protecting me. But I was angry because I think he didn't understand. But now I realize why he was angry. Because he loved me. He wanted to protect me. I still collect angels. I do believe in angels. I believe the universe sends you angels. And if you don't look out, you're going to miss them. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 44 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Joe Sidek, one of Malaysia's strongest advocates for the arts and culture, and most known for his long-standing tenure as the festival director for Georgetown Festival, as well as for the Butterworth Fringe Festival and Rainforest Fringe Festival. In this episode, we cover his childhood, the many things that he did leading up to becoming a festival director, as well as the intricacies of pulling together many extraordinary arts and culture performances from all over the country and region. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I want to start with a fun fact I found out about you. Apparently, you have noble blood. Oh, God. How did you know that? I mean, where did you find that? It's not written in any way. Oh, God. I mean, I, I only know of this because when I was going to go to university, my father produced a little piece of paper that said I was related to Datuk Klana from Sungai Ujong. And that's how he got to Malay College. It's as noble as you can get with the Malays. That was a piece of paper that I wish I have today, but it's gone, you know. But yeah, we're related. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a noble blood. My mother's a commoner. So there goes my noble blood. But your dad certainly lived a sort of noble life, right? He went to a special school with all these other classmates with their own servants and he could recite Shakespeare. How do you know? My God, you've done a lot of homework. This is like, thank you. You know, Not many people know this. You know, King's husband and I sat and talked about a project called Four Kings. My father did go to Malay College and he went to school with kings or would-be kings then. But he comes from a small village and poor. And he was a little bit embarrassed the fact that he had to wear a red jacket or my grandfather would bring bananas to the gate. And whereas everything else was Rolls Royce or Bentleys and drivers. So although we were noble, we were not that rich. I was born in Johor, 58, right. 62, 63, I was in Kuala Lumpur, 66, 7, we were in Ipoh, 68, I came to Penang, that gives my age straight away, uh, so I've been here for 54 years. And what was it like moving to Penang for the first time, do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I was teased at school because my Malay accent was very Southern Malay, very polite, very gracious. And the Penang Malays were a bit rough in the hang and Aku and all that. So I was always teased at school, but I like coming to Penang. My parents love Penang, hence why they settled on here. He's from Negri, but I think I've loved Penang. I don't see anywhere else in the world that I would call home for this moment. What was it about Penang and the Penangites that you love so much? I mean, I read an article where you described real Penangites are arrogant, rude, confident, and proud of who they are. Oh my God, you really have done homework. Uh, yeah, they're rude, they're arrogant, opinionated, but they love this island. It belongs to them. And the we is such an important word here because it is a village. It's really a village. And I recently did a project and I'm just so proud that this village came together. So I think Penang people take ownership of land. Um, I believe even people in Sarawak is the same. In the whole of Malaysia, Sarawakans, Penangites and Sabahans take ownership of land and pride. And were you shy as a child? I'm still shy. People don't know this, but there's always a yin and yang. It's true. I'm painfully shy and I sometimes at parties. So I told you King had to hold my hand. And I'm terrified of public speaking. I'm learning it. I'm learning how to grasp it because it's my work. So it's like, you just have to learn to get better. But I'm shy. I'm shy. And there's, there's a dual personality somewhere. You're both shy and people think I'm an extrovert. I'm not. I'm quite shy. So you spent your you know, youth in Penang, then you went to London A-levels, and then you ended up doing town and country planning at Manchester University. Yes. Why? 
My father wanted me to be a smart, clever young man, and he had a job waiting for me in Penang. So um, after my A-levels, he wanted me to do town planning. And so there was either Manchester or Dundee, and Dundee sounded grossly cold. And so I went to Manchester. But you wanted to do art in London, right? Yeah, this one, yeah. I went to the same school as John Galliano. We used to the same art class. I don't know, you may not know John Galliano, but he was such a big name maybe 10 years ago. We used to go partying and he was like brilliant. There were five of us that wanted to go to St. Martin's and I was the best art student in the class because the teacher used my work to show off everyone. And one year after I left, Galliano came to me in a bar and said, they use your work to teach us. But my father didn't want me to go to art school. So I hated him for a long while, but I realized why he didn't want me to go to art school. So after you finished your degree, did you feel like you wanted to stay back? I didn't come to stay home. I didn't. Okay, this is the first time I'm making a real public announcement. I didn't finish my degree. I failed one paper. And I had to reset. And the professors and all wrote to me and persuaded me to reset. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I finished the three years. If I had sat for that one paper, I would have got my town planning set. But no, I didn't. I just disappeared. I decided I was going to stay on. I lived off milk bottles and rice and tomato ketchup. I lost touch with my family. That really upset my parents. But I wanted to stay on. But after one year... I decided that I had to come back because my father sent a telegram to my sister in Finland. And I still remember my sister. At that time, there was no handphones or whatever. But telegram read, please tell Joe to come home. We love him. Oh my God, I'm going to be so emotional. Uh, For years, I kept that telegram because I think we all grew up with this Freudian baggage of father's love or mother's love. And that certainly was one of the first pivotal points of me thinking my father did love me. As I understand, your dad was always critical of you, right? He never had nice things to say and it was always a difficult relationship. Wow. How did you know all this? This is not public knowledge. My father was very critical. And I remember one time me asking him, why can't you just one day just say, well done? And, and this is after my first big show where I had Nora Mazuki and Aisha Ali, who 20 years later, I think, wrote a glowing thing. And all he did said, oh, I would have done different. And then he did say like, why should I praise you so that you get big-headed? I carried this for maybe 30, 40 years that he never, ever said nice things, except one year before he died. Okay, I would be so emotional. One year before he died, I was looking after him. He had a stroke. We were walking to the swing and he said to me, I never made my money or my fortune till I was in my 50s. I know you will make it. I mean, that was significant because before that you had done so many, many, many different things, right? You came back, you were a landscape gardener, yeah, baby, lawn, boom, boom, clap, so many things. Yeah, but you know, I, I tell you, I think secretly he really admired me. And for the longest time, I had this film in my head that was going to be called Rain Trees on Brook Road. Brook Road is this old street in Penang with rain trees. And I imagined this film. I saw a scene where I would be driving back from the airport and my father had died and it was raining and I go through his things and I find my letters. And I've, I've been carrying that images for so many years of my life. And then when my father died, I, I actually found a whole stack of letters that he had kept. I had imagined this in a film script in my head. And, and in those days, there were aerograms that we used to write. And there was a whole stack of me, very angry aerograms from, I was in San Francisco and I would write to him daily. It was a love-hate letter. It was like, how can you do this to me? And why didn't you do that? But at the same time saying, I love him so much. And the old man kept these letters. I'm, I'm a big one on, I don't know whether you know this film called Cat and Hot Tin Roof. It's a Tennessee William. And I feel it so much represents my relationship with my father, or late father, that it was love that could never be told or love that he cannot say. So it's like, you don't talk about it, but you know that he loves you, you know, and he knows he loves you and you think he doesn't love you, but he does. So now at 62, I think my father did love me very, very much. That realization came, I think, around in your 40s when your dad had a stroke. But I wonder prior to that, do you have some kind of idea of what you wanted to do? Like how did this very different job come about? It's not so different, you know. I think I'm lucky in my life. I have a, a photographic memory. I filed up everything in my head, names and songs and titles and melodies and images. And I remember there was a, a film that I saw called Les Enfants de Paradis, but Children of Paradise. And years later, I 
turn it into a title of a fashion shot. So, or Edith Piaf or, or Gaudi. And as a child, I would just file up images and things. And then you go through life and then it comes out again, the secret gardens. Every project I do now actually comes from years of me filing up in my memory bank things. That's why I keep telling all these people who want to be creative, start filing, start building your memory bank. That is your source of information. That's the source of your inspiration. It sounds like you loved all kinds of art and you were just naturally drawn to it. I don't know. Yeah, I would say that I just like everything from music, colors, to fashion, to fabrics, to plants. And then you find slots for it in your head. Now, I feel that the best job is being a festival director because you can put it all in projects and you get people to do different things. So it is being able to rehash what you think you like or music or sounds and to work with people on it. So it's, it's a dream job. So before you became a festival director, you actually took over your dad's position as the Chemdoy Syndrome Rahat. So yeah. you were working in textile chemicals for the first time. That must have been a shock. Yeah, I remember like my father died. We had this big family meeting. I have an elder brother and my mother said, no, Joe, you have to do it. Then I said, no, I don't want. I want to do the arts. Me being stupid and naive and young. No, no, no. I want to do the arts. I don't want to. And I remember crying because I, I felt so pressured. And then my mom said that my father wanted me to do it. And so I'm glad I did, actually. It actually made a man out of me. I think being disciplined into going to a factory in the middle of nowhere, where it's grey and dull and dusty, people work. There's accountants and there's factory workers and there's production staff. I'm still working there, although I'm not physically there every day. I think that taught me a lot about human relations. And my Chinese almanac guy said that I needed water in my element. So, And I think that's the reason why I'm so suited to that job, because it's chemicals. So hence, I've never left that job. So around 2001 as well, you do your first festival that fell. Can you share a bit about that experience? Oh my God. <laughs> I've never spoken again publicly about this. No? I was asked to do a festival by the authorities. And then what I didn't know was they already decided what it was going to be like. So me with my grand ideas, it didn't gel. And I remember being so ashamed and embarrassed and out of my debts. And I had a poster of that festival somewhere. And it was to remind me of my failure. Like I designed this, what I thought was a nice poster, but I couldn't put it all together. So this is not public knowledge that I failed miserably as a festival director in my first go. But when you say fail, was it by your own standards or by other By anyone's standard. <laughs> by everyone's standard. By anyone and everyone's standard. I just failed a big time, really big time. Wow. And so after that, in 2008, 7th of July, that's when Malacca and Georgetown were jointly inscribed as UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I believe 2008, 2009, they asked you to come on board and help to run a one-day celebration festival. I was asked and I was given, I think it was eight days. The first one, they said, let's do a celebration. Can you think of something? And I pulled together a show called A Musical Journey of Penang. And I called every singer that I know who's old, who sang before, from retired rock Malay bands to opera singer. And I remember having Shafina singing Tanjung Penaga for me with a 40 choir, all rehearsed in eight days. And just last week, I rehashed and revised Tanjung Penaga. And it's something that I will treasure. You know, It's Tanah Pusaka, but I got Tan Sri Ahmad Marikan's permission to change to Tanjung Penaga, which is the old name for Georgetown. I, mean, I carry this love for certain things. I mean, it seems so incredible. I brought all these people together in eight days. That's not easy to find these people and get them to free their slot at the same time to do that thing. I don't know how I did it. Honestly, I really don't know. I fell out with a famous singer because she was supposed to do the arrangement for music. He wanted to charge me 10000 for an arrangement. I thought it was crazy. Anyway, and then I got a person who helped me until today. And I remember I had this vision of a backdrop and it was like 30, 40 feet high. So I sketched this, got the carpenters to do it, and we did the scaffolding. And the day of the show, the rains and winds came. I remember climbing up, holding on, and there was about eight volunteers all holding on for our dear lives, hoping that the, the prop didn't fall down. And I remember telling myself that I would leave the country and never come back because it was so dangerous. But this is something I obviously like, I'm fearless or I just need things done and I will do it, you know? That was like, wow, it's crazy. I mean, I was, what, 20, 30 feet high because I wanted to have a backdrop of Georgetown and it also had a town hall and city hall. So I had these people, I can't even remember, I think it was printed backdrops of Penang because I see it and I want it. I'm one of those crazy people that if I want something, I will just have to have it at all costs. I have to have it, you know? So 2010 is when the Georgetown Festival was the first time they wanted it. Yeah. How did you get involved? I think there was a proposal that was called. 
Wow. <laughs> okay. They called for proposal. There were three groups that sent in proposal. There were three cultural groups. I think the Penang Chinese All Clan and there was an Art Alliance and I think Penang Heritage Trust all sent in proposals, but that was six weeks before the actual festival and the state had a budget of 400,000 and then everybody pulled out. And then Datuk Sri Maimuna, who was then the GTWHI head, asked me whether I could do something. And I remember saying this, I said, I've got an idea for a series of events, you know, because it's too embarrassing to call it a festival because it's just a series of events. And I think we did it in six weeks and a budget of 400,000 and it's surprising you mentioned Tiong Hin, right? He's a good friend. And I remember I had heard that they wanted me to do it. So I... Before that six weeks, I think maybe two months or maybe just slightly above two months, I hinted to him that if I did do it, come on board. But I think we did the work in six weeks and half of the budget went into his show. How on earth did I ever do a festival, my first festival, getting money and not going to jail? And it was incredible. Six weeks and a festival. That was the thing that amazed me that you had to plan for an entire month and you only had 200000 after you took away that to 100,000 for yeah. the play itself. I think what I did was I just listed anything interesting that was happening. And I'll be say this, you have to have friends. I remember Tong Hin was one. I remember Glenn Gui. I hardly knew him, but I said, could you show your film? And another friend who dances for the Beijing Opera. And I said, would you come? So I made phone calls to people that I knew. Until today, I can tell you that I think one of the biggest, most important thing is goodwill, that people would do something because they like you or they, they support the arts. I think it's a very important factor in the arts. You know? I suppose a lot of people listening would realise that, gosh, you have friends everywhere. How do you even get to know them such that you can pull them onto this event? Somebody shared with me and he says, this is the manager of Akram Khan, which is a very famous dance company in London. This is one of the most unusual things about Georgetown Festival was he said, you were always with people. You were always sat down with everyone and you talked to everyone. It wasn't a transaction where I come to perform and I leave. So I make a point to try to meet everyone and you become connected in spirit. It's like a camaraderie of friendship because you're working together. And I think that carries a lot of weight. It's like me and King. I'm, I'm forever grateful to King of Jong-Hin because they were there when I needed them. And I believe the chief minister also said, call me if you need any help. Yes, the, the man really behind the festival is actually YB Lim Guaneng because he knew that it was only 400,000 and he said, if you need anything, call me. And I must say in the nine years that I worked under him, he did respond to my phone calls and very fast. And he actually became my patron. And I think it would never be the same again anywhere. Nowhere in Malaysia, at least, was anyone ever given the freedom to curate like I did. He was backing me. I mean, everything was audited. I had to give reports and all that. But he never said no. There was a show once, and I remember recently, somebody told me a story about the last Georgetown Festival, how the state walked out from a performance, right, by Ida Redza, who's a dancer. And I said, well, the fault lies in that they have not pre-warned the state. I brought in a show called 100%. I went to see the chief minister and said, look, this is 100 people on stage that will actually respond to questions. And they may respond to questions about you being corrupted or you doing this or you doing wrong or they don't like the state. And how are you with that? And he was man enough to say, go ahead. And I think the show would have never happened anywhere else in Malaysia. So for that, I'm very grateful. He was supporting the arts without that major censorship thing. I'm very, very grateful. You had that tremendous support and I think you also did lots of research. You were looking at the Singapore Festival, you were looking at Johor and Malacca. What were the different elements that you were drawing out them to put into Georgetown Festival? I think like we discussed earlier, wherever I do something, I do homework. And before me was the Johor International Festival, there's the Malacca Festival. There was also a festival in Kuala Lumpur done by JKKN that was called an international festival. I studied this first because they were locals. And then I studied Singapore and there was a festival called the Sun Festival in Singapore that actually would have been two years older than us. Uh, they were three years old. And I was really naive. And I remember at a press conference saying, we're going to beat the Sun Festival. And this is an IMG-backed festival that had Sharon Stone and Berlin Philharmonic and all that. But I just felt as if they didn't have a strong narrative, no storytelling, just big names and money. And I felt that Penang hasn't got money, but Penang was going to tell a story. We're going to tell our story. Our city will be the canvas and we will tell our story. And I think it worked in that respect. I think what's beautiful is that you feature a lot of local <clears throat> artists, but you also draw in the international artists as well. So what's the thought process behind bringing these international artists? <clears throat> I was accused of not supporting the local artists for many, many years. Almost every year there would be a question or somebody would complain to the press or complain to Guaneng. A never-ending stream of the locals saying that I did not support the local thing. 
And I always gave the same answer that I don't support an act because it's local or foreign. I support it because it's good. I don't want to be pushed into a criteria of I must have 10% Malay, 20% Chinese, 18% white, 9% German. I just picked what I thought was suitable about storytelling. And reason why I brought in some of the international shows was actually to educate and expose locals that this is how you get big. There's one particular director that I brought in three times, Royston Abel. He did Manganeya Seduction, he did The Kitchen, and he did Manganeya Classroom. I felt that he is one of the best examples of how do you put traditional art on a contemporary stage for a contemporary audience. And his works have traveled and it's been in Lincoln Center. It's open in Melbourne Festival. I wanted Malaysian cultural practitioners to look at that as a benchmark. But I failed. Not many Malaysian cultural practitioners saw that. Why do you think they failed to recognize that? I don't know. I mean, I'm very grateful to this. A young, two young men who run a theatre group called Terry and the Cuz. And they would come up every show. And they said, it's crazy why people in KL wouldn't come up and see this really, really big international shows, right? That plays in Saddles Wells and all that. And I thought, yeah, why don't people come? If I'm a dancer, I would come and see. And we had the University of Science here with theatre and theatre masters and performing arts masters. And yet the students didn't come. And the student tickets were at 25 ringgit. So why wouldn't you come to see what shows have traveled the world? So I don't know. In that respect, I failed. And I think it's because culturally, our people are not ready. We have to slowly go back to the drawing board and feed them maybe smaller amounts. I don't know. I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm going back to the drawing board and re-looking, re-imagining where I failed. I mean, you mentioned 25 ringgit, but I believe that you always try to make around 80% of the entire thing free because you want more locals to come and experience everything that the festival has. No, it wasn't 80% free. There was a certain percentage of the shows that were free and public because I felt that the public here not ready for, and it would be too elitist to have like 80, 100 ringgit shows and all that. So we tried to do a balance. I, I failed. I think that's one of my weak points. I failed in the formula. So I'm back my second shot of how to make it work. So 2011 is when Ernest Zakharovich first went to Penang. And how did you first come to hear about Ernest? Because you then got him, commissioned him to do a series of art pieces for the next GTF in 2012. No, actually, he came to me. He was already in Penang. He did a wall actually just down the road from my office, a huge wall that nobody took any notice. He came to the office with this very interesting proposal of what I felt was very relevant, interesting. And he did a lot of homework. He picked right walls. He did storytelling on walls. And it was just magical for him and for the festival. I'm very grateful that he came. And I think it's been probably the, the most number of eyeballs we've ever had. But the sad thing about it is that everybody uses that as a benchmark. And it's mural, mural, mural. Like I just wish the younger artists would look at other mediums, look at what's happening now with NFTs and digital art or whatever, rather than just be one-dimensional with murals. I, I'm glad it's giving a lot of mural artists work, though. Everywhere in Malaysia now, every small city, Taiping and Kampa. And I think it's good because artists are getting work. But I'd like Malaysians to think out of the box, not copy, be ahead of the curve, lead the curve change the curve as opposed to just follow. And I think we are very creative here in Malaysia, but because we've been taught to cut, copy and paste, because the Chegu says cut, copy, so they all do that. And I think this thing about being brave and being different is where we will be different from the other art centres in the region. But back in that day, you know, when Ernest first came on, mirror art wasn't a big thing, right? It was something that was quite new. And that's when it exploded. Yeah. I think it was just timely. I mean, you know, it must be the stars for him and me that it, it exploded. There's also another parallel wire mesh sculptures that the state had a competition. I think it's called Marking Georgetown, which was also very, very interesting, but obviously underpublicized or people don't write too much about it. They just focus on the mural. But that came out almost the same time that actually made storytelling on the walls as a canvas. So wherever you go to Georgetown, you also see that it's like a living canvas. It's like a living museum. You see the stories as it is and old houses. And although it's gentrified in a lot of ways, there's still a lot of the old that makes it still very charming. How do you balance? I mean, that's one of the big criticisms, right? You have all these tourists come, there's gentrification over commercialization, but you still need that flow of traffic to come in and support the local community. I think I would fight against numbers. I feel it's a wrong thing to look at numbers. Major cities like Boracay and Venice have learned that numbers kill the city. So then they've shut down. When people just look at millions of thousands of tourists coming in, they're not value added. So I like the idea of Bhutan where people pay 500 US premium and the measure of success in Bhutan is happiness. 
I kind of like how the world is going that way, I hope. So there must be a measure of quality and, and balance as opposed to just numbers, numbers, numbers. It's like now, like you get influencers just get numbers and people are just milking out rubbish, really. It's scary that the world is becoming Kardashians. But apart from all that, there's also the more meaningful parts. Like one of the things I loved was 2012, you started the Student and Community Tickets Project. How did that come about? I've always felt it's important to allow people who are less privileged. And I think I've got two soft spots, single mothers and children or orphans. I think it comes from my father. So we've always had like 10% of all show tickets being given to slightly differently abled people. I love the term. I read it and I'm going to use that. It says differently abled people, I suppose, to disabled. So every show, we get people to donate. And we convert the $25 tickets into community tickets. So people who poor artists, students, people who can't afford shows, people from homes, old folks. And I remember one time, you know, like why I do a festival, there are two occasions. One, there was a show called Gala. It's by a very famous French choreographer. And he put 20 people on stage. And the 20 people were differently able people. People who were individuals, fat, thin, people on a wheelchair. And then we had invited some children from home and they were on a wheelchair. And then halfway through the show, this boy on a wheelchair got up and started screaming and going like that. And I thought, oh my God, get the boy out. He's uncomfortable. He wants to go out and all that. But after the show, the teacher said, my God, the boy was so happy. Another show was this show called Mangania Seduction. And I remember that year we lost a lot of money. And Narelle, who owns Bonton, said to me, Joe, people like you. If you put a collection box out there, people will give you money. So we put out a box and I was going to lose 300000 I remember that. And we didn't collect 300000 But what moved me was one of the boys from an Indian orphanage took out a dollar fifty and put it in the jar. And when I asked him, why did you do that? He said, my teacher said, you don't have money. <laughs> And this is after you've written to big, <laughs> big name CEOs that don't give you anything. This eight-year-old boy or however how old he was gave you all his money, you know? So that's why I do festivals. The joy that you bring to people and maybe one day one of these boys will be a dancer, producer, filmmaker, or just a happy person, you know? That was one of my favorite stories. And I thought it was so encouraging because you had shared how for the past five years. I can't share that story. I, I mean, my PR people, my office always says, don't talk about that because <laughs> it gets you very emotional. And it's embarrassing because you're supposed to be this hard festival director. No. And suddenly you just melt. Whenever I think about that, it just sends me into this really emotional space of how meaningful my work is. Yeah. And I made that one boy happy. Was this the guy that made you go, this is what I want to do? Because the first few years you were trying to figure out and just hold a festival, hold a festival, right? And eventually you made that realization. But even 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 nine years, it was still hold the festival, hold the festival, just finish it, do it. But when I reflect and look back why I do the festival, it will be this really, really, it's not the big people that you meet. It's the small people that really moved me. Like I did a festival in Batworth and this couple came up to me and asked to take a picture with me. And I felt like a rock star. Like, wow, do you want to take a picture with me? <laughs> and then it's in the middle of nowhere. And I said, uh, how did you know about this? She said, oh, we stumbled upon it last year. So we came back this year. And that's when you start to feel really good that real people really appreciate your work. And they didn't have to be nice to me. They didn't know who I was or didn't, I didn't know who they were. They didn't have to say nice things. But that's what moves me most when people I don't know touch at me. Do people normally stop you in the streets? Sometimes. Sometimes. I, I get a kick out of it because it's like me wanting to be Mother Teresa. There's a side of me that wants to teach her. When people do that, it makes you feel justified that you are a good person. You mentioned the Butterworth Fringe Festival, which is like a 20-minute fairy ride array. And it's quite similar yes. to George China as well, right? So was it an interesting challenge if you were to hold it together? It was an interesting challenge. It was a real challenge because the place that we were bringing this festival to was really in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't an attractive space, but it's. I put it down to like something that I enjoyed doing. It was a challenge. I might not want to do it again. It was interesting. I, I liked it. And one of the things I wanted to bring up was Haiki Singlo because I talked to Tiong Hing about this. It's his semi-autobiography and it was because of that performance at George Sun that he even managed to make it into a film and it's just really... So incredible to see the impact. So what was it like from your perspective, just getting Tiong Hing to come in and host this performance? 
Yeah, it's a friend and he did Emily for me in the first year. And then I think two or three years later, he did Silat. I think he's incredibly talented. And I, I know of this film that he's been wanting to do. And then I remember we talked about this and I said, why don't you put it into a play? And I think he was trying to find funding for the film. And I'm glad he did the play because I think everybody that walked away from that play cried. It was that moving. And this was like hot, sweltering Ku Kong Si. People were sitting on benches, but it was such a moving show and I, I think that's probably to me one of his best work even better than the film it was so moving I remember I cried and I remember seeing people crying as they came out of the thing I thought wow this is so moving you know I, I kind of like gospel songs and I think he finished with Amazing Grace and it's such a mo- moving song and it was just the on point song to use at the very last bit you know clever I thought it was beautiful as well that just before that, there was a giant storm and everything was torn up and they were panicking to put it all together. But it worked out in get. Yes. The night before, it was pouring with rain. Dress rehearsal, it was pouring with rain. And backstage, there was puddles and umbrellas and all that. And I've always believed that I'm very lucky that the whole nine years of Georgetown Festival, we never had the rain. We used not witch doctors, they called it, I can't remember, they had, they had a very clever word for it. And I, every year I consulted the same man. He says uh, he's died since, but he always held the rain away. Where the consultant, we call him. <laughs> and I believe Kang also helped co-produce two houses. What was that like? Yeah, two houses came from me talking to Kang's husband, Yu Bing. We talked about, when I was younger, I used to go to this old house that is this character who was very much like Quentin Crisp. I don't know whether you know Quentin Crisp. He, he did. He was very famous as the first English poofter. And he went to America and was celebrated because he never dusted. He was witty, clever. And John Hurt did a film called The Naked Civil Servant. And I used to go to this house and this person would hold court. And I would hear the stories of the rich people in Penang, the rich families. And I often wonder, wouldn't it be wonderful to put it in a play? So then along came Yu Bang. So he did two houses. It's centered around the stories of two families. And then I think a few years later, he did uh, Pearl at the Eastern and Oriental, also produced by King. And King, I think 2012, I think, did something called Number 7 at the Blue Mansion. That's my relationship with King. Like, she was always there with great ideas. That's incredible. And I mean, like Blue Mansion is such a historical place as well in Penang. And I think that's what you always look for, something that's historical and meaningful. You get the cafes involved as well. So what is your thought process in finding all these unusual places to host these events? It's because Penang hasn't got huge performing halls and swanky galleries, but we have really nice spaces, raw places, beautiful historical buildings. Where in the world would you be given the two houses is a huge mansion? The owners gave it to us for one month and put aside a BBC production, a month for free. So only in Penang would owners give you houses or buildings or streets or walls without that price tag. Only in Penang. That's why I said, how can I not love the people of Penang or the, this village or the people or the government here? You know? It is a very different thing here than anywhere else. So there's an amazing thing of how the community comes and supports you. What are the big challenges that you face that people you feel don't normally see as you're going to host these things for them? Money. Money has always been the challenge. It costs a lot of money to run and put big productions. I'm still taking out arrows and knives from my back because villages tend to be backstabbing, small-mindedness. But I think if you listen to what Jesus said, forgive them, Lord, for did not know. The times that they threw knives at me is because they didn't know. So I am now working with people, with the very people that threw knives at me because I feel it, they don't know. That's why they threw knives at me. So that, that was challenging when people don't know and they just attack or they hit you or, and they don't take the trouble to find out. I, I'm quite a nice person, I think. But they, they just blindly accuse me of not supporting local because they don't come to me. They don't talk to me. You know? I think it's also because it's a two-way thing. It's a lack of communication on both parts. I'm now learning that I also have to learn to open up more maybe or talk in a different language or open my eyes a bit more. Enjoying this whole year has been looking at local, local, local because you can't travel, you can't look global and you start to appreciate and think what could you do with things around you? And it's an exciting challenge, a challenge in a good way, not challenge in a negative way, but challenge in a very positive and productive way. So how has it been with COVID coming down? impact? I mean, like your work is very much meeting in person. 
it was very hard because come 2020, I didn't have a project. I had three staff and we had no projects for the whole year. I, I had to let go one. I kept two. It's just been really, really hard, but it's not anything special. I think other people would have had it just as hard or even harder. So it's an industry that you think your industry is hardly hit. But what about people who own hotels or there are five that lost his job? So everybody had it hard. So I think that no one is special here. That's why I feel sometimes the arts community keeps saying, oh, the government should do something. The government needs to feed fathers that have five children first rather than artists. I think, I don't know. But I think it's the me culture that's very wrong where it's always about me, 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 me. If you're a performer in America, there are no grants. You have to go out there and be a waiter and earn money and fund your own shows and fund your own music careers. Here we think, oh, if there's money, we'll do the project. If there's no money, no project. So there goes the missing thing which I feel missing here, that it is hard work. You need to put in the blood, sweat and tears. Do you think that COVID has changed the art community in an irreversible manner? I hope so. I really, really sincerely hope so. I hope people realize that if you were producing bad work and you didn't get any help and your work didn't get pulled up, the help is just for you to survive, not for you to continue doing bad work. So that's the danger of the survival grants that Chandana is giving out and all that. And people mistake it for, oh, I'm good. That's why I'm, I'm getting this grant. The government was just giving these grants to help you survive. But I think we all should internalize and see that if we couldn't survive the COVID on artistic merit, then maybe we were not good in the first place. So I think it's a time that people should reflect and use the COVID as a testing kit that you have to be good and you have to be even better when you come out of COVID. I'm sure you're keeping the pulse on what all the artists are doing as well. So do you have any particular examples of people that you see who have adapted really well that people could look to and be inspired by? I give this example regionally. There's a theatre company called Wild Rice with Ivan Heng. Yeah? And they're a 20-year-old company. And when everybody went going online, everybody decided, oh, we'll just go online, we go online. And at that time, it was like April, May, June, right? The whole world was going online. And why would anybody pay any attention to your show? Because there's no brand loyalty. And there you get New York Metropolitan Opera and Saddles Wells and Cirque du Soleil giving free shows. So why would people pay 50 ringgit to see your shows? So that's the same benchmark that I'm asking people now. Build your brand, have brand loyalty, so that and have a strong story. While Rice, they, they were having and I was very impressed. They had a gala ball, online gala ball, that they sold tickets for 1,000, 20,000, and 10,000, I think, for a table, 10,000, a table, 25,000, I think. And I thought, my God, they've built such good brand loyalty. And whenever they streamed their live shows, they had a lot of eyeballs from 35 countries because their shows were good, because they built the brand, because they have a story. And I think people need to really benchmark yourself, like, how good are you really? Or are we just Juara Kampong? Without naming names, I always look and ask, what was that all about? And I wonder whether these people who run these events or festivals ask the same question. How many people your festival was about? Was there anybody outside your circle of friends or outside Malaysia that picked up on that festival? So these are like questions like I recently stepped out of the Penang Museum Board because I felt we failed as museum board directors. We failed because we didn't do good work. So I'm always continuously putting my own report card. And I think people should have a report card and really know whether you failed. And if you did, and you did fail, it's fine failing, but change and not think that you were right. It's easy to compare now, especially you can switch online and you can compare yourself with the world. And you really can sit there and look at, my God, that's global standard. And am I really that good? And you mentioned building brand name. How does one do that when everyone's going online, everyone is doing something? How do you stand out? Having your own story, not copy. Be original. Use uh, material that you own or you make or you create quirky title. Have good imagery because people remember good images. Have your own stamp. And that's something that I think I'm a monster to work for because I have designers who work for me. And if I don't like a blue, they have to change it like 28 times until the right blue. And so you get artists that will cry because this is a monster. But I tell them, I say, it's not about me. It's your work. And at the end of the day, the public is going to see your work and get the name as an artist. And you should take pride in that. And I always use this, like I'm 62 years old, the last card should be mine. And we can fight and argue and I like people to argue with me and if they don't agree with my taste. But I said, the last one, you've just got to trust me. Because if I said, no, I think we stick to what I said in the first place, you just have to trust me because I am 62 and I think the images I put out have been well received. So that's the only thing that I'm really a stickler, images and, and collaterals and aesthetics. I'm a stickler for that. If I want a certain blue, it has to be that blue or a yellow or a texture, you know? 
Has there been any particular artist where you gave that critique and it really took him boy and really became so much better than what he was before? There is one Malay artist who I am a big fan of. He's very popular here, but I rejected his work twice. And because he's a cartoonist, he's an illustrator. And I rejected it because he didn't do anything for me. And about a year ago, we sat down for coffee and he told me, he said, I wrote to Mad Magazine and they gave me the same answers as you did. That I wasn't good enough, my work wasn't this and that. And we've become very good friends, I like to say, you know. And I've always told him, I said, forget about the Malaysian Book of Records or the longest disc or coffee art or whatever. They're just all gimmicks. You want to stand out in the world. You want to be able to say your work stands out. And it's hard because I'm insecure. Like I told you, I'm shy, right? For many, many years, when I was invited overseas or to ask to speak, I felt really nervous. And it's very daunting when you meet Singaporeans wearing black isemiyaki and they know their work really well and they can expound about art or theatre and you don't. You just know what, what moves you and you're not that knowledgeable about the arts. And for many years, I felt, I would say small, I just felt very uncomfortable until the likes of King and people that I know overseas that tell me, God, Joe, you're, you're doing great work. You don't have to feel anywhere but intimidated by any of these people. I was intimidated by, you spend six years in a circuit and you just got thrown into this festival circuit and you're finding your footing and you really don't know a lot of things. I still don't. And sometimes I used to think that I was a bit of a con man because I don't know stuff. I just know what I like. And that's very basic because I'm not knowledgeable. I'm not knowledgeable about music or theatre or art. I just know, I cannot remember. I don't know some of these famous names or whatever, but I just know what I like. That's a human side, which I think has given me strength. And I always tell people, well, don't be like me and feel intimidated. Just be yourself. Embrace your human person. I mean, like you said, you don't know much, but I think a lot of people suffer from imposter syndrome. Do you think it's because of that genuine, deep in your core love for the arts that just kept you going and drove you to just always give your best? Yes, I just love it. I love to be exposed. I love learning. I love seeing new things. And every day I stumble upon things that, that... gives me inspiration to create. Like I'm working on a music video when I was 17 or 16 or 15. There was this famous Indian actress called Zinat Aman and she starred in a movie called, I can't remember what it's called, I think it was called Domer Dom or something. The song was Domer Dom and it's been in my head for 40 years. So I hope maybe in June it'll come out. That's my bucket list. Before June, you actually just finished the open weekend in Penang. How was that? Because it was meant yes. in 2020, right? And then COVID hit. Yeah. We, we, what happened was a group of friends, Alison, who runs, you know, Narelle, who runs China House, Nadia, who runs Campbell Hotel. Friends asked me, like, can you do something? You know, so we had the first meeting and I invited everybody to just voice out. And there was a lot of, I would say, resentment. People wanted to do things, but they just don't know what to do. And I think it's the same. Everybody wants to sail their ship or their boats, but they need a captain. I was thrown into this and I believe that you need to have an armada that it doesn't matter whether you're a boat or a ship or but you need to sail together. And sometimes you need a captain to bring in all the people together. I feel as I'm lucky that I have that, I wouldn't say gift, the ability. So for those who want to become festival directors like yourself, what's your advice? Learn, make coffee for festival directors, be a slave, pick up the trades. And I did. I, I, I made coffee for people. It's nothing like learning and you cannot like... I had one star who worked for me for two years. He was my protege, my blue-eyed boy. That I gave him a big show and it was something like six or $800,000 show. And after the whole festival, he brooded and said that, oh, I got all the credit when he did all the work. And after two years, he thought he was going to be a festival director. And I, I was very upset, actually. It hurt me because I never gave anyone else before him that sort of budget to run and he, he wasn't successful and yet I didn't take it out on him I took the blame you know the project wasn't good but I think people need to understand you need to pay your dues you need to be an apprentice you need to learn I'm 62 I told you I failed as a festival director 2001 was it yeah that's what 20 years ago when I was 40 I failed big time so young kids now must learn that they need to do their apprenticeship you just don't come out being a festival director some can and some are probably very good in their first go I had to learn and I think I wasn't good even with Georgetown Festival because they're looking back there are a lot of little weak holes I would call it little weak pieces where because I was just thrown into it and rushed nine years I didn't have time to reflect so I think it was a good thing that I didn't continue doing the festival that stopped me and I had to reflect and now I think the best is yet to come so having done that reflection what do you think you would do differently moving forward? 
I have this project in my head harboring for four years that my father used to quote Ravina Tagore to me when I was about eight years old. And I thought, why is this man telling me this thing? And I never knew what it meant. But the last four years, I've been studying this thing about Asianism, like who we are, what's our history, and what is our pride. And I, I suddenly realized that even as a festival director, I was wrong. I put the Western psyche above our Asian psyche. We put the white man's idea of culture ahead of us. When India, China, Malays, and the Cambodians, we have historically thousands of years of culture. And yet when we look at art and culture, we put the Western man's psyche up before us. So I'm working on a project, an idea which is still inside me, called Festival of Asia. Because I feel like if you ask people about West Asia, a lot of people cannot tell you what is the demarcation of West Asia and who's in Asia and what is Asia. And when you look at it, we were civilized 2,000 years ago. In Bujang Valley, we were trading elephants to India. Right. So for 2000 years, Malaysia was the home or the platform for trade. And why can't we now take resume that center stage for trading in culture? Because we've got good Muslim brothers in West Asia that would feel comfortable with us. We have truly Asia. We have Chinese and Indians. We could bring in the big boys from China, the big boys in India as a neutral platform. So that's my big wish. My last big project, which is the Festival of Asia for Malaysia. I think what's interesting as well, I remember reading a while back that we also don't have much literature on our history as well. A lot of it was shared verbally and you really have to go and really research and meet the people who are living that life, hopefully who will still remember. I think we do. Mm. It's just that at the last... 20 years, culture has been dumbed down by Chitrawarna. I'm really against the idea of Chitrawarna. It's a dumbing down of culture. And I think the cultural appetite has become dumb. But like things like Rajalawa and it's a hee-hee-ha-ha culture thing. More feathers, more sequins, carnival-like thing. But you look at how us be in Penang, we have Taipusam, we have Hungry Ghost. That's culture, that's tradition. We have traditional Malay rituals. There's beautiful traditional fabrics, rituals, performances. But we need to be relevant because if you don't, then the kids don't like it. I keep telling people that, why don't you do Borea with rap? Because Borea is social commentary of those days. And if you put rap there, it's social commentary. But find a middle ground where you introduce rap into Borea and then it'll make itself cultural relevant. Culture evolved too. What was mainstay culture became pop. Pop became culture, you know? What's interesting and I think it happens a lot throughout Malaysia as well, is that you have all these amazing people doing their trade, which they have probably inherited generation after generation. They're probably the last one because their younger kids don't want to do it anymore. It's not cool. It doesn't earn a lot of money. But how do you keep that alive? Because I don't think this 60, 70 year old uncles will want to learn how to rap to draw the no, younger crowd. No. No, it's the younger ones that need to, okay, say for instance, the beaded shoe, right? It's very hard. It takes you like six weeks to do a shoe or something like that. How do you really make it relevant? That's a, a, a difficult question. But the beauty of it does not fade. So I think if people put a price to beauty, a price to tradition, then handwork can come back. You look at the Japanese, how they learn 40, 50 years to be a master. You don't become a master until you learn the trade, like the Chinese too. But now people just want to do it fast. So the finesse of the world is gone. So I feel as if we have to, and it is there. It's just around us. And I'm, I'm beginning to feel that, like, my God, I was blinded too. I am now doing research. I'm playing homage to the, the older people who sang in Bakat TV and got second prize and people who dance and people who wrote beautiful things. I'm hoping to give them, uh, put them, uh, at least to archive them, like their contribution to the arts in Penang. And I think they were there before us. And there's a lot to learn from the past. So it sounds very much like to ensure that the past and all that rich culture is preserved. We all have a part to play. We have to go out, learn it, be aware. Sometimes preserve is a, an old-fashioned word because you, mm. think, you think of preservatives and putting it in vibe. <laughs> I think we have to come up with a sexier word than preserve. I, I think we have to find a sexier word about culture has to be reinvented or something because in order for it to, to survive in its old form, it has to be repackaged. That's why I worship Royston Abel because... He was so clever in putting Sufi musicians in red box that reminded him of Red Light District in Amsterdam. And that visually was so entrancing. That, and yet the form was traditional Sufi musicians. So for me, that's clever. That's packaging. You don't change the art form. You change the packaging, the way it's been presented. So that I think is an art. If we can find a new way to present something in a contemporary way, because it's a contemporary audience that's out there. Because it's very hard for Mark Young. It's heavy for young people to understand it. 
So I think people need to relook at how I don't have the answers. I hope I, I'll get to be able to play around with it for another 10 years. So for those listening, what do you think is the best way for people to support the arts? Buy tickets. I mean, if you think that you don't enjoy the arts, buy tickets for the young ones. Buy tickets for your nephews, nieces, or your children, because it's important for them to be exposed. If you by now at 30 don't like the arts, then forget about you. We don't want to change you. Start changing the 12 and 13-year-olds because they're going to take over the world. And I said, support a friend who's doing the arts. It's not easy. Buy tickets. Buy tickets, buy tickets, buy tickets, give, lend, loan, help, assist, do what you can, you know? Because a lot of people can support the artists and the system by giving, paying 15 ringgit or 20 ringgit for a ticket. But artists also must realize it's not charity. If you do bad shows and people pay 30 ringgit once, twice, the third time, they will never go and see an art show again. And you've just jeopardized every other performing group out there. So bad art have to go. And for artists, I imagine that having a community around them to bounce ideas off each other is so important. So if you are just starting out, you don't know anyone who's in the arts, what's the best way to go around and find like-minded people? Go to Clubhouse. I mean, it's so easy now. In the old days, you couldn't. You couldn't be into a space because you had to travel. Now look at Clubhouse, look at chat rooms, look at spaces, look at webinars and Zoom webinars. It is so easy for people to have access to creative people now where we never did. I mean, look at your podcast. There's hundreds of podcasts of very interesting people out there. Webinars and Zooms and Zoom webinars and talks. And Clubhouse is an interesting thing. I am so inspired because I see young Malaysians, especially young Malays, who are liberal and yet religious. They can quote all the hadith. For a moment, I was really disheartened by how Malaysia is going. I felt, oh God, are we ever going to come out of this positive? And then I met these Malays online, and they are architects, they're designers, they're clever, knowledgeable, well-read, and they can quote the Quran and the hadith, and yet they are liberal. And I think, my God, our country is with hope. And I'm like the old man in the room, you know, the pachi, you know? But I can tell you, it's really inspiring when you see good Malays out there wanting to change the country in a good way. I'm very glad that we're ending on such a positive note. So I normally love to end all of my interviews with this question. For the first one, it's, do you feel like you have found your why? Yes, I, at least on track. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I'm a good son and I make people happy. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? A good person, a meaningful person. I think these two words are very important, meaningful and good. So what if you're a festival director? If you're not a good person or a meaningful person. You know? So you're just being creative. But what's the value of creativity if it doesn't help people or make people happy? It can be highbrow, okay, it challenges people to think. But at some point, there must be good there. There must be a piece of jigsaw that says good. And where can people go to connect with you, find out what you're doing, support everything? I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. It's either me, Joe Sidek, or Penang Arts Council, which is my new passion. Because I feel as if it's not about you and me, it's the power of we that can change the world. And Arts Council is a registered body, it's a non-profit body, and it's not an I word, it's a we word. So I've decided to focus on that, to build this platform that it's going to be about a collective, it's about the we's of the world. And I think you're also on Clubhouse as well, so they can find you there. <laughs> yeah, well, I go in and then I'm, I'm getting a bit bored of it, but I still go in. And is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered yet? Two things. One is no anger, no ego, and no fear. Good things don't last, neither does bad things. And that was the end of episode 44. For the show notes and transcript, head over to sothisismywhy.com forward slash 44. Alongside a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter, featuring all kinds of inspiring and interesting things I've found over the course of the week. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting one of Malaysia's finest miniature artists who recently shared her art with Ryan Reynolds, aka Deadpool, on his Snapchat episode. We cover everything, including how she first discovered miniature art at the age of 14, why she loves it so much, and the steps she took to make it into a full-time career. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.